Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, and mental health conditions in general. We hear all the time about utilizing therapies or medications to help with these conditions. However, when you look at the data, these methods don't have the best success rates in the long term. Which brings up the question about other ways to treat these conditions. And there are some really neat up and coming treatment options that are in trials currently, and we'll be talking about that later on. What's up everyone, I'm Brian Carroll and I'm here to help people move more, eat well and be adventurous. And today I have Dr. David Rabin on the show. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Dr. David because he combines Western approaches and Eastern approaches to mental health. And we talk about a ton of topics like medications, natural methods to improve mood, psychedelics, and even touch therapy. He also has a really neat wearable product called the Apollo Neuro, which has seven different modes to improve your nervous system. And I've been using it for a month and a half now, and I really enjoy the recovery mode for after exercise and the sleep mode. And I'll be doing a video talking more about what happened when I use the Apollo Neuro soon. But my weekly average REM sleep has increased by about 30%, which is pretty significant. And I was able to score you a 10% discount on the Apollo Neuro. Just go to summitforwellness.com slash Apollo to learn more. Also, our huge giveaway is still underway for a chance to win a new Vitamix or a $100 gift card. So head over to summitforwellness.com slash giveaway to learn the details. Now let's jump into my conversation with Dr. David. Dr. David Rabin is a board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist, is a co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, the first scientifically validated wearable system to improve heart rate variability, focus, relaxation, and access to meditative states by delivering gentle layered vibrations to the skin. He is also the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine and a psychedelic clinical researcher currently evaluating the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy in treatment-resistant mental illnesses. Thanks for coming on to the show, Dr. Dave. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course, and I'm super excited because there's a lot of topics I want to dive into for this episode. Um, so let's before we do that, let's dive into your background. Let's learn more about you. Uh, what got you into psychiatry? And then what got you so interested in all these different avenues of psychiatry? So I think what originally got me interested in psychiatry was that the understanding uh, chronic stress and resilience and the impact that chronic stress has on our lives and um, growing up and, and sort of being aware um, of this pattern where some people would respond to chronic stress in, in their lives or trauma, multiple, one or multiple negative experiences over time, and they would overcome those negative experiences, those challenges, and grow from them into much stronger versions of themselves that were um, able to take on bigger and, and more lofty challenges and goals. And then there are others of us who often go the opposite path, where we either face challenge and stagnate, or we face challenge and end up succumbing to the challenge and suffering long-term from the symptoms of chronic stress, which often include physical and mental symptoms and eventually physical and mental illness. And um, this always fascinated me, this idea of resilience. And originally, I started studying it with 
respect in my in my PhD program uh, and research with respect to aging diseases of blindness and dementia, and then went from there into recognizing that I really enjoyed studying um, the whole person and stress on the whole person level, and really thinking about ways that we can optimize resilience building and recovery better on the whole person level. Um, and then that led me into mental health and psychiatry, where I realized that interestingly, um, most many of our of our patients who have mental illnesses, whether they're PTSD, depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, substance use disorders, many of these people, sometimes uh, over 50% of them who are given the gold standard evidence-based treatment recommendations from the Western mental health program are not responding adequately to treatment, meaning they're still symptomatic years later. And this was really discouraging to, to me and to my colleagues and and really forced us to think outside the box about what else could we use to help treat these conditions more effectively, um, really with a focus on PTSD, because trauma seems to be at the core of a lot of mental illness at some point down the path. And so uh, in medical school, actually, I had a really good friend um, who was longtime plan to go into psychiatry. I didn't really plan to go into it until later in my training. But she said, you know, Dave, you should really think about going into psychiatry. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I really like psychiatry, but, you know, I'm not really sure about it, if it's the field for me, if it's far along enough yet in its development um, and embracing of other alternative practice approaches. And she started sharing with me all these papers from leading research groups in lead who published in leading journals around the world um, from Imperial College of London to, you know, folks at Hopkins, NYU, Yale, who are publishing groundbreaking work on um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and how these medicines were helping to take people who had completely failed treatment um, or totally not responded at all to, to treatment, um, Western treatments for mental illness, and then uh, ultimately had one to three to six experiences with psychedelic medicines like psilocybin or MDMA associated with psychotherapy and had radical shifts in their outcomes that lasted for years later. So that all of a sudden seeing that and reading on the data and reading about the studies and the results they were getting and seeing that these results were continuing over time really helped me understand where the field was. And I said, you know, in basically within 24 hours of diving into that literature, I said, oh, yeah, this is definitely the field for me. I mean, this because this is an opportunity to, to study consciousness which is something that always interested me um, and how we perceive meaning from the world and mental health and resilience and chronic stress. And so it really kind of converged everything that I was doing into one place and, and psychiatry became, became my thing. Now you were talking about uh, resilience with people with uh, stress loads. Does every single person have some level of breaking where they take on too much stress and they can't uh, get past it and it's too much for them? Or are there some people that they can keep piling on stress and there is no break point? That's a, that's a good question. I think that the best way to think about this is that we only have so much energy that we can put out into the world before we have to replenish our energy stores, right? So it's kind of like a battery. Um, we have a very extremely efficient battery in us. And as one analogy where we can charge that battery with certain activities like recovery activities that are usually triggered by safety, that can be safety that's induced in the environment or safety that's self-induced through breath work, yoga, movement, meditation, 
ex- regular, not over-exercise, but regular healthy levels of exercise, good nutrition, lots of soothing, loving touch from our friends and family, soothing music and things like that. Um, all of those things send, uh, stimulate the safety system in our bodies, what's called the parasympathetic recovery nervous system. Um, this system is shut down in response to threat. And threat often is what triggers these fight or flight states that make us feel like we have to peak perform in a given moment. So ultimately, our society and our community and our civilization is very focused for many, many generations on only really peak performance and not peak recovery. And so I think in short, the best way to understand this is that for all of us, whether you're an animal or or a human, if you only focus on peak performance all the time without prioritizing peak recovery to restore the battery in our resiliency stores, then we will we all have increased our chances of burning out um, or succumbing to the effects of chronic stress, which can eventually result in burnout. Um, and that usually starts with decreased creativity, decreased sleep, and increased irritability. These are like the first three signs that we all probably have experienced at some time in our lives, right? It doesn't mean you're suffering from depression. It means you're irritable with your loved ones. You're short with your loved ones because you're not present enough to take and recovered enough to take the time to listen to them and be present with them when they're around and you're not and we're not working. So that's one example. Creativity, sleep are two other examples that quickly disappear or get affected when we're under chronic stress or, or burnt out. So um, if we focus on prioritizing peak recovery as much as we prioritize peak performance, then we can sustain peak performance for a very long time, potentially indefinitely. However, if we, you know, if, if we do not prioritize peak recovery, we know what happens. Right. And uh, another question to go along with resilience is, does your level of resilience also come about with experience? Like, for instance, um, you know, if let's say you take a TV away from a child, that could be the end of the world for them. And they overreact to that little bit of stress of not having a TV, whereas an adult that might not be a problem at all. So is there like a level of experience in life that can help people to shed certain uh, potential stressors and be more resilient to that type of stress? Absolutely. So, so, so resilience is a learned thing, right? It it is part of the core of who we are as humans. We have a certain amount of ability to be resilient at baseline. It's, it's, we're born with it, but there is also a training component to it. So, which is similar for almost all the skills that we have as humans and we're capable of. There's a certain amount that we're predisposed to be able to do when we're born or that sort of, sort of goes along with being uh, born into the bodies that, we, that we're born into. And there's a certain amount that comes with training. However, almost everything requires at least a little bit of training to optimize, right? So right. even if, even looking at elite athletes, which I think is a really good example, these folks, many of them are born with um, a certain body type that they grow into, they're born with a certain um, innate talent or innate ability to do certain things, physical things, better or faster than other people. But that talent, that skill, those skill sets have to be nurtured properly to be able to take them to the level of a professional competitive athlete. Very, very, very few people, if any, are able to take whatever it is they're naturally born with, not practice or do anything, and then become a superstar, right? So, so it's similar to resilience training, like what you're talking about. And, and the best way that we think about it from a neuroscience perspective is this idea of, of believe it or not, 
um, practice makes perfect. So this is something that many of our parents taught us as a kid that I know as a kid, I didn't listen to at all. I was like, oh, you know, it doesn't make sense, whatever. But it's true. Um, actually, Ner uh, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for demonstrating the mechanisms of learning and memory, showed without a doubt that this practice makes perfect concept of how we train ourselves to become better, stronger, more resilient, more able to deal with and overcome chronic stress um, effectively and grow from it is not just unique to us. It's actually something that dates back over 300 million years to ancient sea snails that only have 12,000 neurons. For one, as one example, we have like 100 billion neurons. So we are much more advanced than these ancient sea snails, but even sea snails' brains learn and store memories about threatening and safety th safe things in the same way or similar way that we do. So the practice makes perfect model is very true. And the sooner that we understand that and internalize it as part of this reality that we're facing um, every day, then that in and of itself, that understanding helps to guide the way that we become more resilient and prioritize the things we spend time focusing on in our day-to-day -day lives. Because if we spend time focusing on things or skills or behaviors that are not serving us, like watching TV every time we're stressed out, clearly that doesn't solve the problem of what's causing the stress, but it might feel good in the moment. So every time we recognize we do that, we're actually retraining our brains to associate the distraction of the TV with stress relief, but the problem is still there and still needs to be addressed. And so the source of our anxiety doesn't actually go away. If we learn to address the source of the anxiety, even though it might be a little more uncomfortable in the present moment, it actually creates much more long-term gains in the long, in, uh, over time. And then over time, it actually becomes easier and easier and easier to tap into that state of addressing the problem in the moment, tackling it, and then moving on um, without thinking about it. So that's like when um, you have to look at people's triggers that lead to certain habits. Just like you said, if you're stressed and you sit down and watch TV, that the stress is a trigger. And then the habit is you watch TV. And in the moment, you might feel good from it, but it might not be good long term. Right. And, th and that's the same as every it's everything that goes for everything from, you know, watching TV when we're stressed out or and binging on Netflix to smoking cigarettes to using alcohol, drugs, video games, work, food, you know, food, right? All of these things that we use as either distractions or escapes from anxiety are detrimental because they actually train us to be impulsive, right? They train if, if you train impulsivity and you practice seeking something called instant gratification from distress, which doesn't actually ever really exist other than when you get it from a loved one giving you a hug. There really is no such thing as instant gratification that's, that doesn't have side effects. Um, then we're ignoring the problem at hand, right? So if there's a problem that comes up, meaning that we start to feel restless, anxious, worried, et cetera, about something, and we don't necessarily know what it is, the single best thing we can do in the moment is ask ourselves, what is it making me feel this way right now? not thinking about the past much and not thinking about the future much, but really just trying to think about what is it that's right now in this moment making me feel like crap. And then usually when, you at, when we ask ourselves that question, the answer will come to us. It'll be pretty clear, not necessarily immediately, but usually pretty quickly. And then we can take the actions to address it, which will re result in mid and long-term gains that hopefully prevent that problem from arising in the future. But ultimately, the distraction and numbing technique, that instant gratification technique, doesn't work in the long term, in the midterm. It only works 
to pre- to prevent some of the imme- or reduce some of the immediate distress, but ultimately we do become tolerant of it, and the effects start to wear off over time, which we see with every single numbing and distracting behavior and every drug known to man, right? Yep, and I think this is a great time uh, because earlier you had mentioned that a lot of the Western approach to depression, anxiety, all that type of stuff in the long term hasn't been very successful. So now you're starting to look at uh, you know more root causes or um, different habits that are created from depression, anxiety, et cetera. And I would love to know what is kind of the Western approach to these issues? What is the Western approach? Um, well... The Western approach, as it should be practiced, is different from the way that it is practiced typically, unfortunately. So maybe I'll start with how it's currently practiced. So typically, if you or I am are suffering from low mood for a while or anxiety for a while, say like three to six months, we're feeling like crap every day, we wake up, we have no energy, we feel tired. Um, we're not getting, we don't feel like we're getting good quality sleep. Our mood's down. We're irritable, not feeling our, our usual creative selves, not passionate about work, not going out. All of those things would fall into a general category of depression or anxiety related disorders, right? And there are things in the environment that cause these things. They're not just caused by chance, right? So the start of this path, the clinical path is to start working with a therapist that can t- or talk therapist that can talk to you about what it is that you're feeling and help you to recognize your feelings, recognize what it is you're experiencing when you're stressed out, not feeling good, et cetera. And then help you understand the origins of those behaviors that you engage in. Like, for example, watching TV, right? When you're stressed out, helping you understand why you do that. Maybe you started doing that when you were a kid because you needed a distraction from your parents fighting. And that was the only thing that you could do that you knew was something that worked for you, right? And so getting to the core of why we do that, why we engage in the behavior, what the original trauma was, um, or multiple traumas, the negative, meaningful events over time, what they were, how we reacted to them in the past, and then whether or not that reaction is serving us now, currently, and what we can do about it. So that is the therapeutic, the, tr- the therapeutic approach from a Western perspective is that when it's practiced the right way. Um, however, very few people percentage-wise who have these kinds of conditions that we're talking about, depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, PTSD, very few, if, if any, very few of these people ever come into contact with a therapist who can regularly on like a weekly basis, help to explain to them and walk them through this process. And the process takes a decent amount of effort. So ultimately what happens is people will get directed to a therapist or, and then they'll not, they'll not, they'll have too hard a time with therapy or the therapist won't know how to work them through these processes. And then they'll get sent back to a doctor, psychiatrist, family med doctor, someone who's a prescriber who will talk to them and say, okay, you've tried therapy. You've been to six sessions, 12 sessions, whatever. You're still having symptoms. Let's try Zoloft. Let's try Prozac. Um, let's try any number of medications that are listed in the book for what could be used that has evidence for the symptoms you're experiencing right now. And the problem with that is, is that those, not that those medicines are always bad, they're not. But the problem is that 
there are a lot of other things that we can try before those medicines, because the medicines, unfortunately, train us to seek something outside of ourselves for the healing benefits. And what happens is people are told when they get prescribed the medicines, they have to take them every day, indefinitely, for, you know, who knows how long, sometimes multiple times a day. And that sometimes they don't even start to work for six weeks, right? So there's a, and there's side effects. So the most common side effect with SSRIs, the like Zoloft and Prozac is numbing, numbing to the point where, or numbness to the point where people don't feel um, pleasure the same way anymore. Right. So again, it's one thing to explain that to somebody and say, oh, this medicine you're going to take is going to numb the negative stuff. This the bad stuff you're feeling, but then also explain to them, it's going to numb the positive stuff they're feeling. It's going to bring the whole window in near, more narrow. Um, of feeling. It reduces the window of feeling. So this is really important to, to describe to people so that they understand that there are other options before we jump straight from psychotherapy to prescription medicines that you take every day that increase your risk of side effects. Um, you know, other examples that could fit in the middle there are things like, um, you know, herbal and plant medicine and supplements. Exercise is an incredible antidepressant. Um, Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which typically only requires three to twelve doses over the course of three months, rather than um, rather than a, a dose or mo- one or more doses every day, is, and has less side effects, is often um, a more potent option for people that not enough people know how to provide as clinicians, so it doesn't get offered. Um, so there's a lot of options available. There's wearable technology that can be used for this, Apollo being one of them that we developed to be able to help um, uh, assist in these treatment practices without side effects. So there's lots of things that can be used in between. I think the major issue with Western uh, Western approaches to psychiatry approaches to mental health right now is that there's a big jump from psychotherapy to daily prescription medicines that have side effects. And we really need to fill that gap with a whole bunch of other natural side effect free stuff in between. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. So kind of combining the therapy with these other natural options before getting to the medication. Right. Before getting to specifically prescription medicines as the prescription medicines are a little more risky naturally, like they, they have a little more risk of side effects. It's just, it's just the facts that have come out of the trials. So, you know, for us, you know, one of the things that we focus on with the Board of Medicine in particular is the original Hippocratic Hippocratic Oath and Hippocratic Understanding going back to the origins of Western medicine, which were really a hybrid of Eastern and Western practices, which started with first do no harm, right? So if if you have a medicine that you could take that like like a a Prozac, for instance, because you're not feeling good, and I was to tell you, hey, this medicine could help you, but it's just as likely to give you side effects of no longer being able to have orgasms anymore. You know, you might make a different decision about the drug before you tried it versus something else. So to me, that's like real informed consent. You know, that's really like informing the patient transparently about what they can do before they, you know, go that big, take that big step. Right. Yeah. Cause that's like you said, if you're getting rid of, uh, that feeling on both ends of the spectrum. I've heard people feel like they're they're kind of like a zombie. They don't really have that emotional connection to anything anymore when they're on the medication. Right. And that's and that's that that's that numbness that that we believe comes from and this is not 100% known yet, but we believe that that numbness comes from 
flooding the serotonin receptor, one of the serotonin receptors, it's called a 5-HT2A receptor with the with serotonin from the brain that is flooded because of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which prevents the serotonin from coming back into the brain cell. So normally serotonin is released as a burst to stimulate meaning in association with, or to, to, uh, to convey and communicate meaning between neurons with respect to an event. An event happens, you get a giant burst of serotonin, and it seems like the more meaningful that event is, likely directly correlates with how much serotonin is released and the binding capacity and all that stuff. And then after the event, the serotonin is quickly taken back up into the cells so that another meaningful event can come and then stimulate that, that cell again. But when you flood that receptor site and there's serotonin around all the time, you get what we perceive to be the effect that you just described as feeling like a zombie or feeling numb, where you not only you not only decrease our ability to feel negative feelings, but also the peak of positive feelings as well. And you kind of wind up in this more neutral middle ground, which is fine for some people, but typically not ideal for most. Um, so the serotonin receptor sites, are they similar to like an incident, uh, insulin resistant type state? The more that it experiences, the more resistant it can become to it? Yes and no. I think that the simple way to answer that question is that with respect to receptor physiology, neuro, like neurotransmitter receptor physiology, whether it's insulin or, and, and I'll focus on the similarities here because I think that's the most important. So, so to answer your question simply, the answer is mostly yes, in that the more that we flood a receptor site in our brains in, or in our bodies, then the more that our bodies and our brains basically the cells that make that receptor decrease the sensitivity of that receptor and the amount of that receptor's presence, right? Mm. So if, if, if the body sees, hey, all the time I am getting activated at this one spot by this one neurotransmitter, call it serotonin, then the serotonin receptors in that spot the cells that make the receptors will start to say, oh, well, I don't need as much receptor made because there's so much activation going on all the time. So it starts to decrease the amount of receptors made and starts to decrease the sensitivity of those receptors, which is also thought to possibly be related to that feeling of numbness that you were describing earlier. Mm, that makes sense. So you had talked about some of the middle ground between um, you know, therapy and uh, clinical medication. And you mentioned plant medicine and herbs. Can you talk about some of the herbs that you would uh, use uh, to help people with depression and anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the most interesting herbs that and supplements that are available have to do with regulating our circadian rhythms more effectively, which is our sleep and wake cycles. So when we focus on our sleep and wake cycles and getting them more uh, more scheduled, more routine our bodies and our minds tend to really like that. That's like, especially when they're, when our sleep and wake cycles are, are consistent with nature. They're like aligned with what's going on in the environment around us in terms of when the sun comes up, when the sun comes down, when the temperature changes around us, what the animals are doing. All of that is kind of our natural state. Um, and so a lot of the supplements that we use, that I use and that many of my colleagues use tend to focus on giving a boost 
to the structure of those circadian rhythms. And that's also what a lot of people, most of our Apollo users use Apollo for, is basically when we want to wake up in the morning and we're feeling tired or sluggish or unmotivated, turning on your Apollo or taking a little bit of um, CBDA, which is the raw form of CBD, for instance, that's not psychoactive, um, or taking a little bit of like reishi mushroom or shaga mushroom. Some of these things can be really helpful. Cordyceps um, or using some, uh, any, any number, there's so many other ones. Ashwagandha is a good one. Um, but by using some of these herbal supplements and plants, um, then you can induce wakefulness. Yerba mate is another favorite that I like. That's an alternative to coffee that can induce wakefulness and induce uh, a state of feeling more energized and motivated to go about your day without actually having to take a, a hardcore stimulant or even take anything that has a significant amount of caffeine in it, which might ultimately disrupt our sleep at the end of the day, right? So if we can avoid taking things that have a really long half-life that um, can disrupt our sleep, then we're likely to feel better the next day as a result. And then that continues over time. So um, the wakeful stuff I just mentioned to you for sleep, when people have trouble sleeping, I recommend things like um, valerian root, um, melatonin, low-dose melatonin. Most people overdose melatonin. Melatonin is an interesting one because it actually tends to work better for most people in lower doses. So somewhere between one uh, 0.5 to two milligrams, not more, and taken somewhere between half an hour and an hour and a half before bed rather than right before bed. These are great, great supplements that work really well to help regulate sleep cycles. 5-HTP, which is a precursor for serotonin, is a really great one. Um, I think I mentioned valerian root. Uh, there's another, a number of other roots and, and things that can be used. Turmeric, curcumin is a really great antioxidant um, that is also a, uh, uh, herb, you know, a great root herbal supplement. Uh, and there's tons of other stuff out there, but many of those things, those are the ones that I use most commonly in my practice. Yeah, that's a lot of really good stuff in there. And I, I love that you brought up the circadian rhythm because I know a lot of people, sleep seems to be one of the first things that people just kind of toss out the window, right? When you have kids, you're not sleeping. When the kids themselves, even though you tell them they need sleep, they're staying up till 2 a.m. doing TikTok or whatever else on social media. And then people wake up tired, they're tired all day. And then they wonder why, you know, they start having anxiety, depression, etc. Yeah. So I love that you brought that up. Oh, yeah, it's so important. And I and that was one of the most important findings that we saw out of Apollo, you know, when we made the technology um, as a wearable, we put it out into the world, we, we first studied in the lab, but then we put it out into the world. And we said, Hey, people tell us how you use this. Um, and people were most were almost when we track their usage, obviously, through the device, because it's a wearable digital device. And over time, what we found is people use it mostly to wake up and energize them in the morning, um, instead of using caffeine and stimulants, and then use it at night to calm down and wind down before bed instead of using alcohol and sedatives. Um, and that in and of itself was probably one of the biggest benefits that they that they found in their lives was just getting that circadian rhythm under control ends up setting us up for success much more of the time. Right. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of questions I have about the Apollo that I want to ask after we talk a little bit more about psychedelics, because sure. I know there's a lot of uh, good stuff coming out about psychedelics. And um, there's also still a lot of legality issues. So can you talk about the legalities a little bit? Sure. 
Um, and, and they're all very related, really. I'm also a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy provider, um, and I'm trained in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as well. Um, we use MDMA and psilocybin in clinical trials only right now. They're not legal for use, except for a certain few small exceptions, like Oregon just legalized and decriminalized psilocybin just recently. Um, you know, some cities in California did it. Colorado is moving in that direction. Many cities have done it there, um, if not the whole state. Um, so there's a lot moving in this direction. But as far as medical practitioners can go who are board certified, we're only legally able to provide ketamine in uh, for general practice at this point. Ketamine, however, is really interesting because ketamine is legal in every state and it's legal in every almost every country in the in the world. And what's oh, wow. yeah, and it's been around for like 70 years and it's a very short acting psychedelic medicine that was originally discovered as an anesthetic agent and a and a pain reliever, I think roughly 70 years ago or something like that. And then anesthesiologists found that it had antidepressant benefits. And so ultimately, I think it was about 10 years ago, a uh, new uh, ketamine was off patent, so it was uh generic and couldn't be patented, but then a new pharmaceutical company came out and patented one form of ketamine, one variety, um, and then ended up putting that through the FDA and got approval for treatment-resistant depression using ketamine as a nasal spray. But um, the more common forms that we use are oral, oral uh, dissolving, rapid dissolving tablets or injection IM in the muscle or in the shoulder or IV uh, in, in, the, in the vein. And that medicine we can deliver in person. We can, and there's probably like a thousand ketamine clinics in the country right now that deliver it in person. Um, but a lot of psychiatrists, uh, which I think is really the mo- one of the most exciting areas of psychiatry, a lot of psychiatrists are now delivering ketamine remotely. Um, we have a big remote ketamine practice where I work with a number of providers um, where we see clients over the internet and then we uh, across different states. And then we have the pharmacy mail the clinical grade medicine to your home. And then walk you through how to do it at home um, on your own time with us and then on your own time thereafter, which saves everyone a lot of time and everyone a lot of money down the road and increases accessibility to the medicine dramatically. So as as we look ahead, you know, legal wise, legality wise, MDMA and psilocybin are ketamine is going to be legal. It's legal now and it will continue to be legal. And right now, I think that's the major focus for. Um, how we can provide psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to people for treatment-resistant mental illnesses, for which the results have been literally tremendous. Um, MDMA and psilocybin have great results, but they're not going to be legal through the FDA, meaning not in a study, uh, for legal use, not in a study like in a regular practice, will probably be end of 2022, beginning of 2023, and then others will follow. Um, But... uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, the results from these medicines, which we haven't really talked about that much, are really impressive from the clinical trials. And just to give you an idea, people who have had treatment-resistant depression or PTSD for 10-plus years can get just one to three doses of psilocybin or MDMA, um, and within um, and within just one to three doses of medicine with associated psychotherapy for anywhere from six to 12 weeks will have, will over 67% of these people are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for 
their mental illness at one to five years out. So you think about how, wow. how incredible that is. We haven't gotten anything close to that kind of findings, those kinds of findings from our SSRI Western medicines like Prozac, Zoloft, you know, Celexa, Lexapro, any of those other ones. We, we don't see that. We see that people have to take the medicine every day continuously to continue to get benefit. With psychedelic medicines, we see something different. We see that we can provide the medicine in somewhere between one to three doses. In the case of ketamine, it's more like 12 doses, but you provide it in a very uh, set, rigid amount of doses, a number of doses, and then that is provided in association with psychotherapy. The psychotherapy with the medicine combined helps the client remember their own inner innate skills of how to heal themselves and how to recover. And then they do the work themselves and then they sustain the work over time, which is what we call integration. And then that results in these long-term benefits years later um, that we don't see with other mainstream medicines. Yeah, that's amazing. So with the dosing, are people actually going on uh, psychedelic trips or is it not quite that strong so that they are present in the moment? Well, in these studies, the dosing is pretty high. So for the psilocybin studies, the doses have been three and a half to five, five grams. So that's like a, you know, a full, fully psychedelic dose, fully altered state of consciousness dose. Um, with MDMA, obviously the experience with MDMA is different. It's a very clear experience that um, isn't, you don't really like have thing like you don't see things or hear things that you normally wouldn't hear or see necessarily with MDMA, um, but you do have profound clarity into your life, into um, others around you, the way you've been thinking about yourself, the way you've been thinking about yourself and others um, in the world. So, with but and with respect to MDMA, they do use a full dose as well. Ketamine is also used in a psychedelic dose. So these doses are on the order of obviously everyone's different, but with ketamine, it's somewhere between. 50 and 100 milligrams usually of active medicine. Uh, so what's the actual mechanism that's going on with the psychedelics in the brain? Like, wh how is it that they can go on a, a psychedelic experience and be able to recover from depression and anxiety with that going on? That's a great question. So I can't tell you that we know the exact mechanism yet. I think we're working on it. I'm working on it with some some research groups um, and, and working with maps on this, we're also have, there's lots of other groups doing incredible work around the world on this. One of my favorites actually is, um, the work is the work of Franz Vollenweider, who has done some of the best, uh, research into psilocybin and LSD in Switzerland. Um, and he's one of the old guard in this department, um, been doing this for a very long time. And he's found some fascinating results that really link psychedelic medicine back to this serotonin receptor that we were talking about earlier, the 5-HT2A receptor, in that um, it appears, for instance, and I, again, I can't tell you how they all work because they all work differently and we don't know exactly how they work, um, but it, in terms of inducing their effect. But what I can tell you is that it appears that there is a very common mechanism between all of them. And that common mechanism is this 5-HT2A receptor that is a serotonin receptor that is particularly highly concentrated in the emotional cortex of our brains. And interestingly, 
again, this receptor is flooded when we're exposed to SSRIs. But when you block that receptor, and that receptor is also, I should say, bound by serotonin under normal conditions. And when we, and when we, um, and when we take psilocybin or when we take LSD, psilocybin and LSD bind directly to this 5-HT2A receptor, which was found by Franz Vollenweider and colleagues that this binding occurs. So what's really interesting that, Fran- that Vollenweider showed is that if you give somebody a placebo or active group, and he did this in a double-blind placebo-controlled fashion, where he gave a bunch of people LSD and psilocybin, and then healthy people, and then gave them a drug that blocks activity at the 5-HT2A receptor specifically, an oral drug. And some people got a sugar pill, and some people got the actual blocking drug. And interestingly enough, all the people who got the drug that blocks activity at this one receptor basically had no altered state of consciousness effects and no shift in their perceptual meaningful meaning of the experience with the psilocybin or the LSD, which is really interesting because we've never, ever known that there was really one receptor that was sort of sitting at the top of the cascade, right? We always thought that there were tons of stuff going on, which there is. There's still dopamine going on. There's still oxytocin. There's still serotonin in other places. There's still lots of stuff happening, but there is one receptor Interestingly enough, in that emotional cortex, it's also very common in other parts of the brain, but really focused in that emotional cortex where we know drugs like psilocybin, MDMA, and LSD uh, act, that that receptor is particularly important at governing the rest of the cascade. So interestingly enough, the reason why I brought this up is because if if you saturate that receptor, if you fill it with stuff, then like with the Prozac, Zoloft, these SSRIs, you create numbness. If you create a burst experience, which is what LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA do at the receptor site, they create this giant burst of activity of serotonin that doesn't last a long time. It lasts like four to six hours, not weeks. Then that burst results in this radical transformative experience that allows us to change the way we perceive meaning from our lives, right? So in some ways, this 5-HT2A serotonin receptor is really interesting to think about as almost the meaning receptor. It's like the receptor that we activate naturally when we perceive meaning from the environment. And that receptor can also be influenced by different chemicals in the environment and different experiences from the environment and from our past that change the way we perceive meaning and change the way that we have these experiences. So to answer your question, I think that I know that wasn't a short answer, but I think a lot of the the central pathway of how these medicines work is that they focus on binding this receptor, this ser- specific 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, creating bursts of activity, which is not that different from the way that we would create natural bursts of activity when we have a spiritual, profound, meaningful experience naturally. Um, and then that time-limited burst of activity that allows for us to shift our meaning our sense of meaning allows us to literally change the way that we see ourselves in our lives and see the way that we can heal ourselves. And then that over time, change, as, as we, that, that experience isn't enough. Over time, we have to integrate what we learn from that experience into our day-to-day practice that literally reinforces new behavior along this practice makes perfect model of making sure that we are still, still reinforcing what we've learned from the experience. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And that brings up an interesting question is when you get that burst and you have all these neurotransmitters that are flooding the system and then you come way off of that, do you dip into a low at all? Do you like over because there's, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. So, so people, so most people don't, um, most psychedelic medicines don't, don't dip people into a low. Um, if the, if they're used properly, which means that the, set and setting of the environment is curated properly and safely. So if the person's in a really safe environment, then they typically do not experience that kind of come down effect that people describe. However, there are cases where people have had very severe PTSD for many years, um, where they will experience a come down after the MDMA wears off. Um, that mm. definitely does happen. Um, and, it, but it's something that's, it's not like it's, it's yes or no, it happens. It's, there, there's a gray area where we can work with people to avoid that from really making them feel miserable and sticking, rather keeping the positive stuff at the forefront. Um, but I think it's important to note that if you're someone who typically bounces up and down between, I feel really great, I feel really crappy, I feel really great, I feel really crappy, meaning that you probably don't have a very good balance of serotonin in your body or in your mind. And it's not like you're born with that. It's just that your behavior pattern or your life pattern has resulted in you not having a good balance of serotonin necessarily. It's probably more likely that if you don't take proper precautions for a psychedelic experience with your therapist or clinician or whoever it is, that you will feel a little thrown off afterwards coming back into your regular self particularly your day-to-day -day self, particularly after your first experience. So it's really important to take that into account when, you're, when we're thinking about this stuff and how to, how to make sure we have a good experience for our, with, our, with our clients. Yeah, the psychedelic information is super, I'm fascinated by it. And I, like you said, there's going to be a lot more information coming out in the future, um, especially once more and more things become legalized uh, nationwide. So I'm super excited to see that. And then you've mentioned multiple times your Apollo Neuro device. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on with that? What is it? First off, I, I have it on my ankle right now, and I have it in the focus mode. Um, and then tell us what the purpose is. So, so Apollo is a wearable that delivers a gentle vibration to the skin that, help, that feels, like, um, a, a feels like someone giving you a hug on a bad day or feels like, someone hold, or feels like when you hold a pet uh, or purring a cat um, or the ocean waves washing over us, which is instantly calming. And the reason how we, or the way we came up with this was actually very heavily influenced by my research into uh, chronic stress and resilience and, and um, people who have veterans who had treatment resistant PTSD. And also it was heavily influenced by my training in MDMA assisted psychotherapy because MDMA assisted psychotherapy, like most current modern form practices of psychotherapy are all based on safety practices. So me and when I when I say that I mean making sure that when the client comes into our office, that for them to have a good experience in the office, they have to feel safe, emotionally, physically, mentally safe around us, legally safe. Knowing that if they tell us something, we're not going to report them to the cops. Knowing that we're not going to judge them when they tell us something, right? And so ha being having that safety that we curate for them, which is what people pay us for when they come into the office, is absolutely critical. And, and in the MDMA experience, that safety is 
is highlighted as the most important part of the experience for curation. So when I started thinking about this from the standpoint of the importance of safety or, and why it, why it creates or facilitates these really powerful healing experiences for people, I realized that this is not unique. And the reason why the safety is so important is because safety is literally the trigger for our parasympathetic recovery nervous system to turn on. And that system governs and directs resources to our reproductive system, our digestive system, our immune system, our sleep and recovery system, our um, metabolic system, and our creativity part of our brains, our empathy parts of our brains, all the parts of our brains and bodies that we want to be active when we're not actively running from a bear or a lion in that moment, right? When we're running from a bear or a lion in that moment, and we're actually in a survival threat. We don't want resources going to those systems. But when we are safe, we want resources going to those systems. Um, that Those systems, reproduction, creativity, uh, empathy, et cetera, they all make our lives so much better. And so understanding that, what we realized was looking back at all the literature that had been, you know, this this is research that I did mostly between 2014 and 2018 at the University of Pittsburgh, doing the literature review of what had already been done, we found out that it was very clear that certain, certain things boost activity in the recovery system much more than others. And touch was one of those things. And um, music was one of those things. So effectively, we researched in depth all the neuroscience of touch and music, and then figured out how to rep and, and uh, the states that the body gets into when we reach states of, of calm and flow. And then we basically customized music that's written for the touch receptors on our skin rather than for our ears that allows us to uh, feel the vibrations from the wearable and that our emotional brain automatically interprets those signals as safety. And that allows us to either enter into a calm, clear focus state more easily or a, or a calm, sleepy state more easily or a relaxed state or a meditative state or a wakeful, high energy state, whatever it might be that we're trying to transition to, it helps us access our goals more effectively, just like we could do with deep breathing or just like we could do with music or soothing touch from a loved one. But we don't always have those, those people with us or always have the, the clarity of mind to tap into a breathing exercise in the middle of a board meeting or at any given moment, right? So, that, so Apollo really came out of that research and then turned into a wearable that um, delivers these gentle, soothing vibrations to the skin um, that has no side effects, which is really great. So we can use it on kids and, 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 uh, elderly adults and vulnerable populations. And we did, uh, testing on thousands of people in the lab and real world, and then released that into the wild in January of 2020. And now we have about, I want to say 15,000 devices out there in the world. Um, we're having great results that are consistent with our lab trials, which is really promising and so rare to see. Yeah. Um, when I got the device, I was, you know, I'm always slightly skeptical about things. And I'm like, is it psychosomatic that it works? Or is it actually doing something? And so uh, that first night that I put it on, like, usually it takes me a little while to kind of calm down before I go to sleep. I hit the uh, the sleep mode. And then within like two minutes, boom, I was out. And so I've been monitoring with my, um, I have my Garmin Phoenix watch. So it does a lot of different uh, health markers as well. And I've been uh, monitoring just the last month uh, the different sleep levels that it tracks. And my REM sleep has been increasing. 
Um, and it's I'm in a deeper state of sleep and I feel so much better. It's actually I, I, I'm very impressed with it. And then I also use it like right now um, when I'm doing podcast interviews or anything that I have to be more focused on. I use it then. And then uh, one of the things I really like, too, is the recovery mode. Mm-hmm. And I have some questions with that. So um, like. When I do a lot of recovery for myself, I'm using different tools such as percussion massagers, like a hypervolt and all that type of stuff. If you're using the recovery mode um, on the Apollo while also doing like a percussion massage or anything like that, would that interrupt what the Apollo is trying to do? It shouldn't. We don't have any evidence to say that it would at this point. Most people combine the Apollo with other things. Um, mm. I think the main goal is just make sure the main, the main uh, thing to make sure of is that your goals are aligned, right? So don't drink a cup of coffee and then put the Apollo on sleep mode because that's probably not going to work very well, right? So, however, I do know a lot of people who will drink coffee in the morning and then feel like they, they're over-caffeinated and put it on the meditation mode for the day because they're, they want to slow down, slow, slow their roll a little bit, you know? Um, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, the, the over-caffeinated, uh, over-caffeinated adjustment. Um, but I think as long as your goals are aligned, so you're using, you're, you're trying to recover post-stress, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional, I mostly use the recovery mode after long travel and after I work out. Um, but if you use it in, a, in alignment with the goal of recovering post-stress, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, what have you, then it will work fine with whatever it is you're doing. But if you're doing something else that is the opposite, has the opposite outcome, then it's going to conflict. Does that make sense? So can you uh, train your nervous system in the wrong way? Just like you said, if you're taking caffeine and trying to go to bed, can you screw up your nervous system in that way? Yeah, I mean, you could train your nervous system the wrong way doing any number of things. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's to me, like, that's like the brilliance of, Eric, of, of Candel's work more than anything is is that practice makes perfect is not respective of just good things, right? It's bad things too. It's impulse. It applies to impulsivity. It applies to instant gratification. It applies to, to feeding that compulsive part of ourselves, right? The more we do something, even if like drinking, drinking coffee in the morning, many of us do it, even though it doesn't actually serve us very well. You know, the more we do it though, the more we rely on it. And that's, that's just how we train our bodies and our brains. That's, that's, how the, that's how the core parts of our nervous system work, biologically speaking. So taking that into account is really important so that we at least, at the, at the very least, make sure that we're training ourselves in alignment with our goals. Perfect. And then um, my final question about the Apollo is, um, you know, I've just used the preset modes that's on the app i haven't played with any of the intensity adjustments or anything like that so with the intensity adjustments what is there certain guidelines to follow for that like do you want to just barely be feeling the vibrations or do you want the vibrations to be strong that's a great question and some of the stuff is included in with the device but um and i'm really glad actually to hear that you've been having such great results with the factory settings that we sent you um because those are, interestingly enough, those are just what we put in there because that's what tends to work for most people. Um, so it's really interesting that you were having such good results with that. I'll send you another document that you can share around to, to people who connect with you through Summit for Wellness that um, has more details. But ultimately, the main idea here is that the different 
modes. There's seven different modes. So there's energy and wake up, which is the most energizing. It's kind of like a cup of it's kind of like a cup of espresso, like a double shot of espresso. Then there's uh, social and open, which is like a social, clear, focused, creative flow state. Great. I, I use that one mostly for public presentations and running meetings and um, going out when I'm tired and when I have to hang out with folks. Then there's clear and focus, which is another one that you that I use a lot too, which is great for focus, great for presentations, um, and great for podcasting and that kind of thing. Uh, and then the rebuild and recover is kind of the balanced one that's right in the middle. It's not really that stimulating. It's not really that calming. It's kind of like balance right in the middle that is great for post-stress of any kind, um, even if you just use it for two minutes. And then below rebuild and recover are the much more uh, calming patterns. So meditation, mindfulness, relax and unwind, and sleep and renew. Each setting has its own intensity bar that you can adjust to your comfort. Um, what we typically recommend is that you adjust the intensity to the level where you can just start to feel it. It's kind of like the recommendations we use for people who ask us about microdosing, like you were asking earlier. Um, you adjust the level of the dose of Apollo to where you can just barely feel it, but it's not distracting. So with people ask us about microdosing, again, microdosing of psychedelic medicines in particular is not necessarily legal, um, depending on the medicine, but we uh, or effective, but when people ask us, we tell them, you know, the best best choice is to choose a dose that is one tenth to one hundredth of the dose, active high dose, peak dose, and that you do that and dose yourself at a level where you just barely notice that there's something different. And that's really where people have to tend to have the best effects. Um, the nice thing about Apollo in this regard is that Apollo doesn't have any side effects because it's just sound waves and you can wear it all the time. So what we were really thinking at the university was, hey, psychedelics are amazing. They are really truly at the forefront of where mental health is going. However, most of them are illegal. Most of them won't be available for use in the mainstream until 2022, 2023. Ketamine is the only one we have right now, and there's very few people trained to administer it properly. So what could we do for, for people? We could create, if we understand how psychedelic medicines work based on the safety pathway I talked to you about earlier, then we can maybe make a technology that can activate the safety pathway in a similar manner as psychedelics, but without having the side effects of psychedelics. So it could be used in kids, and it could be used in adults, it could be in elderly adults, and people who wouldn't necessarily be good candidates for medicine. So that was a big focus for us going into this. And the intensity is the main way that you can customize your experience with Apollo right now. In the future, there will be more software releases coming out that allow more customization over time. Awesome. Well, I'm loving it. I'm so glad that you have it available and I'm 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 really enjoying playing around with it. So uh, if people want to learn more about Apollo, they can go to summitforwellness.com slash Apollo. And then if people want to, see more that you're doing as well. DrDave.io is where they can find you. Is there any final thoughts that you want to share with us? Uh, no, I mean, I think we covered it. I, I'll say if anybody wants to check out um, my nonprofit work uh, with respect to helping to provide more education and guidance for the clinical use of plant medicines and minimally and non-invasive treatments for hard-to-treat illnesses, um, please check out theboardofmedicine.org. Um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit medical board of expert leading experts who support this cause of restoring Western medicine back to the original Hippocratic vision and also uniting Western medicine with Eastern and tribal and alternative practices that are safe um, with safety as a priority. 
And um, you can also find me on socials at on Twitter at uh, uh, Dr. Dave Rabin and on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Dave. I appreciate the conversation. And I'm super stoked to see what's going to be coming out of all the psychedelic research that you're involved in. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. I have to say this episode has the potential to be in the top three episodes for next year. And I loved how much information Dr. David shared with us. If you want to learn more about the Apollo Neuro, head over to summitforwellness.com Apollo to get your 10% off coupon. Also, make sure to register for the Vitamix and $100 gift card giveaway. That giveaway ends on Christmas, so make sure you enter as soon as possible. There are daily ways to get more entries, so the earlier you sign up, the more chances you have at winning. So go to summitforwellness.com giveaway to get going. And this is our last full episode of the year. We are winding down and prepping for next year's show lineup, so stay tuned for that. And at the end of the month, we'll have our top five countdown episode. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.